The interviews and discussions in this podcast are opinions only and not financial or investment advice. Listeners should obtain independent advice based on their own circumstances before making any financial decisions. When one of my friend's children had to undergo surgery to remove a brain tumour, we all received a horrifying insight into the procedure. And one of the things that left many of us with our jaw on the ground was the point where the surgery was stopped. Our friend's son was stabilised with his head still open. He was wheeled down the corridor and into a lift to go to a room where all the scanning technology was. They did the scans that they needed to see if they'd removed all of the tumour and then he came back up to the surgery and the surgeons continued on. It was vital that it was done, but it added time to his surgery. He had to go to a completely different floor, a completely different room. Could it have been done more efficiently? Well, yes. And the team behind a portable diagnostic tool that can help surgeons around the globe tackle cancer and potentially more diseases was developed right here in Australia. Hello everyone, I'm Christina Morrissey and a big welcome to Stock Insiders, the podcast where we dive deep into the world of stocks and investments and look at the stories and the journeys underpinning a company on the ASX. Today, OptiScan, the Melbourne-based medical tech team, and they've been generating a fairly big news flow of late with their cutting-edge tech that's revolutionising the way surgeons and pathologists work together to improve outcomes for patients, enhancing digital pathology and precision surgery, like just like the surgery to remove my friend's son's brain tumour, which was, by the way, successful. Let's jump in. And our guide today is OptiScan's Chief Executive and Managing Director, Dr. Camille Farah. Camille, hello. Hello, how are you? I'm very well. Tell us about OptiScan. What's the story behind the creation of this innovative scanning technology? How did it all come about? So thanks very much. Uh, the history of uh, OptiScan uh, dates back to the early 90s uh, with a research team working at Monash University in Melbourne. And they were trying to miniaturize uh, what we in the sort of business call a confocal microscope. And for those uh, of the audience who know what confocal microscopes are, they're very large pieces of equipment. Uh, in those uh, days, they used to occupy a whole room and you'd have to bring in a sample and into this special room, put it on this special piece of equipment and then uh, image. And the beauty about confocal microscopes is that it focuses light into one particular spot. And of course, there's a lot of energy then uh, that light can penetrate tissue. And of course, you can see deep into tissue because of that characteristic of confocal microscopy. But uh, the tool was very uh, difficult to use, uh, very large. And so the team at Monash University was trying to miniaturize this. And they were successful in doing that to the degree that our confocal microscope, OptiScan, is now the size of a pen. So you can imagine miniaturizing this large piece of equipment into something that is the size of a pen. And from that work uh, spun out um, OptiScan as a, as a company was registered on the ASX in 1997, and it's been trading um, ever since and creating devices along the way. So how do you use it then in, in surgery? So it's a very simple uh, approach to use. You imagine you've got a computer stack next to you, um, so basically a computer processor, and it's attached with um, a cable, a fiber optic, uh, to a pen. 
So uh, let's imagine the uh, example that you gave earlier in the piece uh, with uh, brain surgery. So instead of taking the patient to this imaging suite, which typically they would have maybe used a CT or an MR to image that particular patient, uh, with our technology, we can obtain microscopic images in real time. So we can see individual cells in real time. So basically you put the probe or this pen size structure onto the brain tissue in this particular instance, and instantly on the screen would appear the images. So if you're looking at, say, for example, a brain tumor, you would see brain tumor cells on the screen. If you were looking at normal tissue and the surgeon had determined that the margin was clear, you would see normal tissue on the screen. Um, it's very portable, very easy to use. Uh, it can get into tight spots, obviously, because it's a small um, pen size structure. And also you can then image multiple different places. So wherever the surgeon thinks that, for example, their margin is very close or they have doubts as to the removal of the tumor, they can just pop the probe on, look at the images, make a determination on the spot, and then move on to the next area once they're satisfied. So oncology is obviously a huge market for this tech. What other applications could, can or could it be used in? Yeah, so oncology is the main focus for us currently, and there are a whole myriad of applications uh, within the field of oncology, and uh, we can discuss that a little bit later if you wish. But other applications uh, really range from everything from making a diagnosis in a doctor's operatory, for example, our current uh, device that we're working on is the Invivage. Uh, it's an oral imaging platform. So you imagine someone comes to uh, a dentist or a doctor, uh, they've got something growing in their mouth, for example, or a lesion on their tongue. Uh, you can use this device uh, just to pop it on the tissue and you can see the images and you can make a diagnosis on the spot. So it removes the need for a physical biopsy. It's what we call virtual biopsy or optical biopsy. So the patient then gets the answer on the spot. The doctor knows exactly what they need to do, whether they need to refer, organize surgery, or what have you. It's then got applications in uh, GI endoscopy. So in uh, gastroenterology, uh, you know, your, your, your audience would be familiar with um, going to have a colonoscopy, for example. Um, so uh, again, the patient goes into the endoscopy suite uh, to have a... a colonoscope and uh, instead of taking multiple little biopsies along the way the doctor can image the tissue in real time and make a determination on the spot do i need to take a biopsy is this a cancer is this a polyp is this benign is it normal and so your procedure is streamlined you don't need to come back then to have further procedures done once the pathology is determined in surgery um, similar to that example we gave earlier um, the surgeon can determine to close the surgical bed and to finish the operation knowing full well they've got the whole tumor out. Now, I was I was reading that report. I was I got stuck into that um, just before we were we were speaking. I thought, so can you just outline that more? Because that's really interesting. Yeah, so um, obviously breast cancer is a big problem worldwide. It's a very big problem, of course, in Australia. Um, Many patients, uh, mostly females, but some males, uh, obviously need to have the tumor removed. And there are various surgical approaches to having that done. One of them is called a lumpectomy, where basically the tumor mass itself is removed in the operating theater. And then the surgeon typically will use either their fingers, so palpation, 
uh, or they might use uh, an X-ray machine uh, to determine if they have the tumor out. Now, they also do this other uh, step called a shave or a cavity shave, and they take a little bit of tissue from the wound, and they also get the pathologist to assess that. But basically, they close up the patient, they send the patient home, and about two weeks later, the pathology report comes, and the pathologist will say that your margin is clear or your margin is involved. If your margin is involved, the patient has to come back to surgery for a second stage surgery, and the surgeon then will focus in on that particular area, which margin, uh, you know, is it the left side, the right side, you know, top, bottom, what have you. Um, and they'll go in and do a second stage surgery. So we think with the use of our digital platform, that could be negated. So imagine now the surgeon's taken the lump out and they put the probe onto the lump or they put the probe into the cavity itself and they image any area that they think is close. They can see the images in real time. They say, oh yes, look, I can see cancer at you know the three o'clock margin, for example. They take a little bit more out and then they image again. And once they're satisfied that they've got normal cells on the screen, they can close the patient up and send the patient home. Now, we believe that if you follow this procedure, this is new workflow, you can cut down on patient time in theater. We believe we can cut that down by at least a quarter. Um, and we can save the hospital operating time. So obviously, we can open then the operating theater time to other surgeons for other procedures. We can see more patients. There's a wait list to actually have procedures done. Um, and if we op open up the resources that we have within the health system, we can see more patients for you know, more lumpectomies or other surgeries. There appears to me, as a layperson looking in, to be very little negatives about um, this about this tech. I want to ask you two questions, though. One is, what's the challenge of having it actually approved by the regulatory authorities? Well, like you know, like any other medical technology company trying to get a device or a drug approved, it's a laborious process. Um, contrary to popular belief, it there is no set. Um, criteria that a company such as ours has to meet. There are guidelines, for example, the FDA uh, in the US, which is where we're targeting our device in the first instance, has a set of guidelines and you can read the guidelines and then you interpret those guidelines. And uh, it may mean one thing to one company and something completely different to another company based on the technology or the device or the drug that they're trying to get approved. So there's, there's no strict criteria you're trying to achieve but what you have to do is satisfy the regulator on safety and effectiveness and really most of the time it comes down to is this thing safe and in our case it's very safe basically we've got a low level laser emitting light uh, in the blue spectrum and there's no sharp bits there's no um you know deep penetrating um uh, pieces to our technology as i said earlier it's just the probe that sits on the tissue so it just touches it gently and then you have to demonstrate effectiveness and to demonstrate effectiveness of course you need to undertake a clinical trial of some sort but again that needs to be within the context of what the regulatory authority um, wishes to see as far as data so that can mean different things for different companies. So challenge number two, as I see it, is getting uh, surgeons and medical practitioners on board and upskilling. Yeah, yeah yes. Um, so of course, um, surgeons, pathologists, physicians, um, 
we're all uh, used to doing things in a particular way. Um, we develop over time. If we've been practicing for quite a bit of time, we de develop um, particular nuances around our procedures. We know what the success rates are if we did one particular procedure versus another or we took one approach versus another. And so uh, educating uh, physicians, doctors, surgeons, pathologists about something new is, again, a bit of a challenge. Um, and really getting them to understand how this can benefit them, their patient, and also the health system. But we're reluctant and as human beings to uh, adopt change very readily. There's, there's that sort of doubt always in the back of our mind. Um, but like any technology, um, if we you know use the, the phone as an example, uh, there's the early adopters, uh, other people, the greater majority sort of wait in the wings to trying to figure out whether this thing works or not. And then once people find out that it works, adoption then becomes very rapid. There's always going to be a group uh, at the far end that will resist using the technology. But it's about education and it's about demonstrating that real effectiveness. Yeah, I think I know where I'd be going or what I'd be asking for if I was the patient, uh, considering the outcomes for me. Um, yeah, look, historically, you've made these devices for other players to include in their tech, haven't you? Yes, we have. We have. Uh, so um, in the early 2000s, uh, we had an agreement with uh, Pentax, is a, a Japanese imaging company, and they produced uh, endomy uh, sorry endoscopes for uh, colonoscopies and other uh, GI applications. Um, and so they came to us and they understood the power of the, our technology at the time, and they wanted us to embed um, our uh, probe endomicroscope into their um, systems. So we built a system for Pentax, which uh, could undertake a normal standard endoscope, which has a camera at the end of the scope. And then we put our microscope into that same scope. So you have a camera and you have a microscope all in the one flexible uh, scope. So now the uh, doctors doing the endoscopy could use the camera to navigate within the body where they were going. Once they got there, they would turn on our microscope and they would be able to assess whether the uh, tissue was cancerous or not. So that was very successful. Uh, the relationship with Pentax uh, resulted in many devices, uh, approval through the FDA, reimbursement codes being issued in the, in the United States. Um, and that went on for about uh, 10 odd years until the uh, global financial crisis. Um, more recently, we've been making um, devices for Carl Zeiss. Uh, they're a very large imaging um, and a microscope company uh, based in Germany. And we make the device for them under license for neurosurgery. So this device would have been really applicable to the example you gave earlier on uh, in, the, in the show about uh, removal of a, a brain tumor and the most common uh, one being the glioblastoma, and it's very difficult to determine whether you have the full extent of the glioblastoma removed or not. So currently, this device is also FDA approved. It's been used in Europe extensively. Um, it's now been used in the United States. It is TGA approved uh, to be used in Australia. Um, the adoption in Australia has been slower than that in Europe and the US, but imagine if that surgeon who is doing your your friend's uh, son had one of these devices, they would basically literally 
put the probe on the brain tissue, which is what our European surgical colleagues are doing. Uh, they would be able to assess the image in real time, or they could transmit the image to a pathologist remotely if they wished in real time, because the images are all digital. So the pathologist could have been in Switzerland and they would still get an answer in real time because they're communicating through a digital platform. Um, and again, the pathologist could guide the surgeon in real time. We wouldn't need to move the patient. We can reduce the time of surgery. Obviously, it's very critical. The patient's under general anesthetic. Um, and we get uh, more certainty around the clearance of that tumor and give better outcomes to the patient. So yes, the logical question is, well, why is this uh, not used more readily? And it, it's really about education. It's really about you know spreading the word, um, having conversations uh, like this, for example, saying these devices exist, this technology exists, this company, this Australian company is out there, you know, trying to uh, make devices to help patients. Um, but it is a long journey, as you can appreciate. You've had an increase in sales revenue this year. What's driving that? Well, we've uh, we've changed our strategy over the last couple of years. Um, prior to my joining as CEO, uh, the company was focused on really being an OEM or a manufacturer for other companies, such as Carl Zeiss, we alluded to earlier, uh, for our brain surgery device. Um, we, we've taken the approach that uh, we really need to uh, take the future into our own hands and bring different surgical devices and pathology uh, applications directly to the market. We can then control the narrative. Uh, we can uh, control basically the application and we can spread the word faster than you know, working necessarily in one restricted area. Um, another change of, of strategy has been a focus on our uh, the sales of our preclinical device. Uh, so we have basically a device that we've built for researchers, academic researchers, medical researchers, where they're using microscopes to study disease processes in the laboratory. Well, we, we've created a device for them that they can study cancer in real time or you know immune cells or blood flow or you know cardiac function in real time. And we're you know, doing the same thing uh, with that preclinical device where spreading the word, telling researchers this exists. And of course, through both of those activities, the, the sales have increased, revenue is increasing. Uh, we've put on a sales team in the US recently, so we're expanding into the US and we did that over 2023. Um, and um, you know, we hope in 2024 that will start to pay dividends for us. Tell us about ProLucid, the partnership with a Canadian software developer. Ah, yes. Uh, so ProLucid, uh, interesting uh, company based in uh, Canada, and they specialize in software development, particularly for health applications, but also they have a fantastic track record of developing software that can be approved by the regulators. Um, so even a software, uh, your audience may not be aware, even a software has to be regulated or approved by uh, the regulators before it's used for uh, human health applications. So again, there are a set of guidelines around that. And ProLucid have a very good track record in developing software that has been approved then by Canada Health and FDA and other um, jurisdictions. So we've partnered with them to develop two essential platforms for OptiScan moving forward. The first one is a, a real-time telepathology platform. 
Uh, and that's the digital uh, platform that a surgeon and pathologist would use in real time to communicate, to share information, to share the images. Um, and that really opens up possibilities for remote surgery, rural diagnostic procedures, where there's a shortage of, say, pathologists to offer that assistance and advice to the local doctor. And of course, it can operate anywhere. Uh, there's a there's a, a digital um, uh, connection. So all you need is the internet and then you're, you're ready. The second application is basically uh, for artificial intelligence. And I'm sure that your um, uh, uh, audience would have heard of AI in 2023. It was, it was the buzz buzzword of the year. And so what we're doing is basically developing an algorithm uh, that assists the surgeon in real time if they didn't have access to a pathologist or they didn't have all of the training or skill to know exactly what a cancer looks like. The artificial intelligence uh, software would tell them that in real time. So as they're scanning the uh, tumor or the margin, the uh, software would say to them, this is cancerous or this is not cancerous. So we're, we're building that with Prolucid and both of those projects are tracking very, very well. We've just finished um, the first phase of the telepathology portal and uh, we're on track to deliver that in 2024. And then the AI uh, algorithms, uh, we can then modify those for different applications. So the first one is for oral, uh, the second one will be for breast, and then there'll be others as different uh, clinical indications come online. Absolutely amazing. So just to, to finish off, what are you expecting for the company in 2024? Is there anything, anything I mean, everything that you've told us sounds fairly significant, but is there anything significant that will make investors sit up and, and take notice and jump on board, or is, are we just looking slowly, slowly? Well, uh, I think uh, for investors, uh, they need to obviously uh, be aware of uh, the hard work that's been done uh, in the last couple of years at least. Uh, and of course, with the base tech over many, many years been proven out, finally coming to demonstrate its effectiveness in the marketplace. And of course, with that increased revenue, increased profit, uh, lots of collaborations and relationships with large hospital systems across the world adopting our technology. Of course, we need to still continue to progress through the re regulatory process. So investors will see us talk a lot more about that for different applications in 2024. We're talking about our breast application more. There'll be a pathology application. And in the future, there'll be some, some others. Um, understanding the addressable market, it, it, we're talking about billions of dollars, not millions, billions of dollars in either cost savings to the health system or uh, revenue generation for clinicians, surgeons, pathologists, and their employers. So th there's a very large opportunity here. And I think finally, probably putting into context, it's to say this is the digital era and health is moving more and more into the digital space and we must. Pathology needs to move into the digital era, similar to what our colleagues in radiology have done over the last 50 years. And we really are at the forefront of doing that. So uh, for investors, it's about really backing that pioneer, unique application in digital pathology and taking that to the world uh, from our base here in Australia. Camille, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much for your time. 
Optiscan, A-S-X-O-I-L. It's a leader in imaging technique called confocal laser endomicroscopy, shifting that pathology workflow and allowing decisions to be made in real time in the operating theatre. It's exciting tech. Keep an eye on them. Check out the news flow. Do you think they're good value at the moment? Only you, you know the answer for that for yourself. I'm Christina Morrissey. We'll chat again on Stock Insiders. <laughs>